0: Welcome to The Mortgage Life, a space for down-to-earth conversations about how
1: mortgages contribute to your life. Well, that sounds canned and maybe a little boring. What? There are so many parts to the mortgage industry and real estate finance we can explore and share with our listeners. Okay, you're right. You're right, Mindy. Our goal
2: is to help secure our clients' financial future.
0: I'm Pete Salamosi.
2: I'm Mindy Bodwin, And I'm Sue Salamosi. We're your hosts. Welcome to The Mortgage Life.
0: Today, we have with us Brendan Ogmanson, the Chief Economist for the BC Real Estate Association. Brendan, thank you for being with us. Thanks for the invite. Great to be here. Actually, this is pretty cool because Brendan is our first guest that we've actually had on twice. He's that important.
3: That's right. Twice as as important as all of your other guests, apparently. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) So just quickly, the BC Real Estate Association It's essentially like an advocacy group for BC Realtors. Is that right?
3: Yeah. So it's an industry association. We do advocacy. We do education. So we have a a large education team that makes courses for realtors uh, and then we, you know, for professional development. And then we also have our, our economics team and standard forms. So all the forms that you have to fill out when you're buying, selling a house. And then I run the economics department.
0: That's actually really timely because today we're talking about various changes that have occurred in the real estate and finance area. And one of which is the home buyer rescission period. So you're talking about forms. Can you tell us a little bit about what this home buyer rescission period is? And then we can get into how it affects things.
3: So the home buyer rescission period is a a three-day waiting period. So after you purchase a home, you have three days to essentially Think about it, and then, and, and if you come to the conclusion that you made a large mistake, then you can rescind that that purchase uh, for a, a nominal fee. I can't remember what it is—a quarter of a quarter of a point on the price or something. So, for some fee, you can you can get out of that that contract.
1: And so that's different than sort of your condition precedent window, right? Different than. Technically speaking.
3: <laughs> kind of, yeah. It, it's, it kind of overlaps with with conditions, you know, condition to financing, condition to inspection, inspection, all those things. It's probably not, I mean, we had advocated for, instead of a rescission period, having a five-day period before. So a house would go on the market and you'd have five days before you could put in an offer where you could look at it, do all, you maybe even get an inspection. You could do a lot, of, you know, that's what we advocated for. I thought it'd be a less, less sort of impact, like present less, less, but we can we can talk about like potential volatility to the market. O- overall, like we did a lot of research on cooling off periods or rescission periods. And the best that anyone could say about them is that they that they don't matter, right? Like the, the, at, <laughs> at best they don't matter at all. Like to the market itself, they're not used a lot either. Uh they're only really for market conditions that you we don't really we've seen probably twice in the past decade in, in um in BC or in Vancouver. So it's a reaction to how Tight markets were and how overheated they were in 2021. I would be really surprised if many people were using the rescission uh, period now. It's it's not like and even calling it a cooling off period. I think makes people think they're trying to cool the housing market, it has nothing to do with that. It's really just about letting cooler heads prevail and not getting wrapped up in sort of the you know buying process and making a a bid that puts you in a financial situation that you weren't actually prepared for.
2: It's interesting that it overlaps with the conditions period. So you've got subject removal and you've also got the rescission, rescission, Mm -hmm. Rescission? is that the right word? (laughs) (laughs) The rescission period. But like, if you've got a subject removal period, that's two weeks, it's it's not like it comes on at the end of the two weeks, right? Like it's the first three days.
3: Yeah. So I I don't know. I mean, it's you can probably tell from my, t- my tone, I'm not a fan <laughs> of this policy. And, you know, I, I told the government when they did their, their consultations, all the problems that, so we, like, in, in, we did some, actually some modeling work. This is one of the problems I always have with when the government announces policy, they never show their work. Like, what do you think is going to happen? And can you show us the steps, right? Like you used to have to do on a uh, uh, elementary school math quiz or something like show your work. Uh, they never have to show their work, so we tend to try and show our work the best we can whenever we come out and criticize a policy. So one of the things we did was you know, we ran with we a mo- model where you can you can uh, sort of simulate, well, what if we have all these extra bids? So what if they have very deep-pocketed buyers who are willing to put offers on several different homes to make sure they get one in an overheated market? What you're really doing is adding even more pressure then to to the market, especially for deep pocketed buyers that can afford just to pay the, the fee to really secure a home. So in that situation, you're actually putting more upper pressure on the market. So we I think with and that's with even with like a costless um, or like a small, small fee, it, it, it ended up like increasing prices by like between one and three percent more than they would be otherwise. Not a lot, but not nothing. Uh, and then there's also risks on the downside I think in a market like we have now. what if you had a buyer that you know if, if prices start falling and they're thinking oh I can I can maybe I'll just wait a month now and and uh, and buy this then you get this they pull out of the deal maybe the person that was selling the home was also buying a home and you get this domino effect where you can and so, Ultimately, I think on the way up, it creates volatility, and it creates volatility on the way down for very little benefit overall for the policy. So, you know, because what we tend to see is that they just don't get used that much. So, we have this this policy that might be actually harming the transaction process and adding volatility to the market, and it's unclear what the benefits actually are.
1: Right, I can see it adding uncertainty.
3: It it almost seemed like from the beginning this
0: was designed to have the optics of preventing things like subject free offers and and that whole kind of euphoria around buying properties right and so what you're saying is that maybe the the stats don't actually bear that out
3: yeah i think we're just it's not it's not that often we're in that situation and and most you know hopefully people buying homes are responsible adults that can can manage their finances properly and don't need to get bailed out on our you know with with policies like this this isn't like predatory, like most most cooling off policies are like for like door-to-door salesmen, they're like pressuring, you know, elderly people into buying vacuums or something. That's like what it used to be, used to be for, or encyclopedia sets or whatever they used to do. When you're buying a home, you are initiating the process it's not like it's not predatory no one's coming to you and say please you got to buy my house and you have an advisor with you you've got a realtor can advise you on the situation whether that's a good price or you're getting over your head so it's it's so different than any other time we see these sort of cooling off periods put into place because it's just a totally different situation they have in australia it's really hard to find any data on how often it's used in australia which probably means not very often and and so i don't know it's it, it adds complication to the transaction without without any real obvious
2: benefit. And in hindsight, the the window where we had, you know, a whole bunch of subject free offers coming through is it was such a small window.
3: Yeah.
1: That's what I'm saying. The the market we're going into now is, I mean, so far very different than it has been the past couple of years. So maybe the value of this program there might have been a couple of weeks for example last spring where it would have come into play but now it yeah. just seems like extra paperwork and at this time <laughs>
3: we'll, we'll see markets again where uh, that get very tight and and where there was those frenzies exist again you know housing markets move in cycles so we'll see if it's useful in those markets and we see if it gets used but generally people buy homes they they don't have a lot of regret about it in the first 3 days i mean it's they're they've gone into that that process with the idea they want to buy something uh, they're not being pressured into it so
2: interesting.
0: so to summarize that one segment, would you say <laughs> I, I always find scales are pretty cool on a scale of let's say uh, zero to ten and we can call these Brendan's okay. zero to ten <laughs> Brendan's 10 being the scale. most the most impactful <laughs> yeah. zero being the least impactful how many Brendan's is this in terms of uh, affecting home buyers?
3: A zero a zero point
0: a 0. five. Awesome. Moving right along.
2: Half of Brendan. <laughs> Half of Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The next policy we wanted to talk about was one that came in, was it January first? The uh, the prohibition on the foreign buyers.
3: So this was an interesting one because never have I done so much international media on something. So I had my picture in the New York Times, which was very I heard.
2: Cool.
3: that was fun. But we also, you know, I, was in, I did an interview for, for Le Monde in France. I did the BBC, the radio, was it Radio Free America? I was on South Korean television, some a Singaporean newspaper. It was like, there was a lot of international interest we don't normally get.
1: Can, can I ask quickly what the general sentiment was internationally yeah. for this decision by us Canadians?
3: Exactly <laughs> what I was what I was going to say. It, the tone of every interview was, was, why is Canada doing this, basically, yeah. like, why doesn't Canada want want foreign buyers? Why doesn't why doesn't Canada want international buyers in their market? Like what do, what are they what are they thinking? It was very a lot of real confusion uh, on the part of the international media about like why are you doing this? And and uh, you didn't hear a lot from the government about it. Like I've had reporters tell me like we we're having a hard time getting anyone from the government to come out and talk about this policy. And for obvious reason, it's it's a it's a political policy that has no no economic merit. So if you you know we we've we've been with had this narrative in the market for a decade or more about you know, our affordability struggles are due to foreign influence. whether it's foreign capital, foreign invest. First, it started as foreign investors, and they just keep moving the goalposts. Now it's with foreign capital or something, and we really can. You know, often, especially the media conflates legal immigration with legal money coming into the country with money laundering or foreign investors, toxic demand, all of those those sort of things we heard about a lot. So, if you were, if that was your theory about the housing market, and we had certainly a lot of academics and market analysts that really pushed that idea that it was all about foreign buyers and foreign capital. If that was your idea what was driving the market, then we could be tested it with, with the pandemic. So, not you know, macroeconomics, you don't normally get to run natural experiments because you can't just say like, Mindy, you're not allowed to buy anything for the next year, and we're going to see what happens, right? We don't have those <laughs> no. sort of natural experiments. But in the case of a, of a pandemic, because borders were essentially closed, we had this experiment where, all right, how about at you know February 2020 or March 2020, whatever it was. We just shut down all foreign investment and immigration and see what happened we we'll see what happens to the housing market. So if you're if you were on the side of you know we are the market's entirely driven by by even just immigration or even you know driven by foreign capital and you called it in the air, you would have been like the our market's going to completely crash. And instead we had record high home sales in 2021 and record high home prices. So if that was your thesis, I think it was pretty thoroughly disproved wrong by the events of 2021. So what we saw in the, in the foreign investment data right now is that it was about foreign investors. So the people who paid the foreign buyers tax in BC were about 1.5% of transactions in 2019. And that fell to about 0.5% during the pandemic, you can turn that all the way down to zero if you want, and it's not going to make much of a difference in, in the housing market. So it's about a hundred sales a month in BC. So over the next two years, 2,400 sales on you know average sales in the market of 85,000. It's yeah. not going to make much of a difference.
1: Yeah, definitely not as much as one would think given the weight it gets in the media.
3: No, and this is what we've been fighting for a long time.
1: One of the questions I had was like with respect to this, is this gonna impact immigration at all if one can't technically buy a home until they're considered a permanent resident? Like is that gonna turn people off from wanting to or is it just is it just the two-year window?
3: Yeah. It, well, for now it's a two-year, two-year ban. I think they're planning to revisit it. On the on the immigration side, it's certainly a mixed signal because Canada increased its immigration targets to just about a one and a half million over three years, uh, from previously it was like a three hundred thousand a year target. They moved to four hundred thousand, they moved up again. So if you if you kind of do the math on on that, BC usually gets about fifteen percent of the Canadian immigration target. So that would mean in in BC, I think I, when I was. Back at the back of the envelope, about 90,000 or so additional new immigrants over and above what we normally would get. So those 90,000, of course, all, some of them live in the same households. You have to know what household size is for new immigrant families. It's on average about three. So that means 30,000 new households over and above normal immigration that, that we weren't previously planning for. So 30,000 is a lot bigger than 2,400, the impact of the foreign buyer ban. Uh, and about half of new immigrant families purchase a home within the first five years. So it could be you know 15,000 additional sales over over three years, um, over and above what we expect because of that increase in the target. So I didn't do any interviews about the immigration targets. I did lots of interviews about the foreign buyer ban, even though one is several magnitudes more important than the other.
1: Yeah, that means we need a lot more uh, units. It always comes down to supply and demand, right? Economics 101, <laughs>
3: At a time when the CMHC estimates that in Canada we have, what, a 3.5 million unit shortage of housing by 2030. Now they did that analysis before the increase in immigration. They so are
2: bringing in all these people and we don't have the houses.
3: Well, this is what we do uh, all the time in Canada. We make policy without, <laughs> for like, usually like this, we'll make this kind of demand side policy and not think about the supply side at all. Or think right. about data at all. Think about the foreign buyer ban. They know the data. They have all the data on how much foreign investment there actually is, uh, but it polls really well to ban foreign buying, so they go ahead and do it. You know, not looking at the data. And this happens across you know politicians across the entire spectrum. They just you know polling's more important than actual data, and, or or even planning. I mean, this idea of I mean they're on the one hand they're trying to solve a problem with the increased in immigration because we have a huge uh, shortage of in our labor force, and so really tough to fill that labor force with babies, because babies, you know, unfortunately, we can't put them to work right away. And they can't, they're too weak <laughs> to swing a hammer. You know, they, they're just not that great at, as labor force participants. So we need to get, we need to fill that somehow. And, and immigration is the fastest way to do it. But we also need to plan for the needs of those people that are coming into the country and, and where they're going to live, because a lot of them are going to rent right away, our, our, our vacancy rate is extremely low uh, in, in Canada and in Vancouver. Uh, and and we have a real shortage of supply on on the ownership market too. So, and and supply can't change that fast. You can't put up an apartment overnight. So,
0: so foreign buyer ban zero to ten. Brendon's,
3: I'd call it like a four. It will reduce. It will reduce demand. Like we've, I've simulated this in in models. So you do get a decline in homes in home sales to investors. And you, uh, but you at the same time the increase in immigration is like a like a ten because you're in a lot of demand so the the net impact is like a six
0: okay okay that's kind of what i was thinking is that one of them is going to be a fairly low impact the other one's a fairly high impact so somewhere in the middle they meet.
3: yeah the net is probably i don't know am i going to really calibrate this scale so i don't know maybe it's like more like a seven i don't know okay
0: <laughs> that's fair my,
2: my comment was going to be on the on the financing side you know we're being told if we're you know if we participate in assisting a foreign buyer finding financing, that's a, it's a, it's a big no, no.
3: Right. Right. So that's the, the, the bigger impact on the foreign buyer ban is the, is the uncertainty and stress it puts on everyone involved in a transaction. So realtors are, are very confused about what the geographical limitations are because first it was like, well, it's just cities. So you know uh does does say cam loop supply because it's a ca not a cma or maybe it's a cma now but anyway it's cmas and cas which not everyone is super uh fluent in the in the designation of, of size of cities and whether or not it's a, a census area or a census metropolitan area. like they most people don't think about that stuff all the time especially like realtors don't think about this a lot um but that was one of the one of the exemptions is if it's out if it's not a ca or cma then then it's okay really what they want to do is carve out resort areas and just make sure that americans and europeans can still buy in whistler and places like that so it has these exemptions if you're a student there's an exemption if you're a temporary foreign worker there's an exemption it,
2: and it, it it's on single family dwellings right like they could a foreign buyer could come and buy a fourplex no it's
3: on it's no? on all all dwellings okay yeah well, the unclear part is whether or not it applies to pre-sales, which I haven't really got a good answer on. So, I mean, if it's going to
2: take more than two years to build, yeah, exactly. That's why <laughs> it's so that's why it's so
3: confusing about whether or not pre-sale would fall under the foreign buyer ban, because we of course need you know our capital markets aren't that deep. We need international capital all the time to fund, large, especially large apartment projects, but.
1: Two years. Well, we're one month into the two years. So, yeah. <laughs> before we
2: move on to the last uh, topic we wanted to talk about, I really want to know how you answered the why question internationally. Why?
3: Oh, uh, because, it, because it it pulls well. You're right. Like, you know, if you, the, the public has been told for the past 10 years that the reason that affordability is so challenging is because of all these foreign investors and foreign capital. No surprise that when they're polled by politicians, like what what kind of policies would we like to see to to, to tame the housing market, that that's usually up there, pretty close to the top, uh, despite a total uh, absence of data supporting that that conclusion. So, hopefully, one of the the maybe the only benefit from this policy will be that people are finally convinced that that's not the main problem in the housing market, and we'll start to see a shift in public opinion and you we're certainly seeing a shift in, in politicians and what they talk about. I've, I've heard uh, you know, the, the politicians talk a lot more about supply in the past year than I have the past decade. I mean, we had politicians denying that supply was even a problem uh, until until the last couple of years. So that, that's, that's at least uh, in progress.
2: So to tie all of these three topics together, just I mean the overarching theme is government regulation and how it's impacting our economy. What do you see in 2023 as far like with government making changes and and policies changing, stress tests being reanalyzed right now? What's what's your prediction for us?
3: So I'm always you know if if you if you my line is always if you held a draft like an NBA draft for the most. You yeah. know what, what? would you who would go first overall? What what factor would go first overall for the housing market? And and interest rates are by far and away like the, the LeBron James of of the market. Like it's that's the number one factor. If nothing changes on interest rates over the next year, and that includes like if we get a lower stress test or something, then the market's going to keep being slow. So. Right. You know, we've seen pretty conclusively that the real resale housing market is extremely rate sensitive. And and so as long as rates are as high as they are, it's going to be really hard to get activity any higher. And it's, you know, it's worse with the stress test. Yeah, you know, if you if you have to qualify these prices at a seven and a half or eight and a half percent stress test, that's gonna be really hard even for really qualified buyers. So yeah, it just it makes it very, very difficult.
1: Brendan, do you have any insight into what OSFI is considering or discussing or, you know, what's kind of going to come out of their analysis that they're doing right now?
3: I think the analysis they're doing is mostly patting themselves on the back. So, I mean, you know, this is the way risk management is supposed to work. So from their side of it, like we had a once in a generation shock and and our, our policy that we implemented made it so that a lot of Canadians didn't take on a lot of extra debt at a time when that would have been you know really really difficult. So in that way, as a risk management tool, perhaps it worked. Uh, I still think it's way way too strenuous. I, I'd be fine with you know just qualifying at your contract rate or or five point two five, whichever is higher, is fine. I'm not sure why we need the two hundred basis point buffer anymore. But I think you know given given that it's, it it probably worked the way it was supposed to during a very large shock to the economy. I I don't see OSV revisiting it in any substantial way i think they're pretty happy with how it performed so um, i don't know if there's a lot of like political pressure for them to change it either
2: it's interesting how we are moving forward but we have to look backwards to and analyze what has happened in order to kind of figure out what's going to happen. Nobody has a crystal ball. And that's maybe the most frustrating part of being in Canada. <laughs> it's
3: frustrating. Like if you think like an eight and a half percent qualifying rate is like a rate that hasn't been relevant in the market since like the early 2000s. And no one thinks if you kind of think about, you know, build up from the Bank of Canada. So like, what does the Bank of Canada want rates to be? right? Like what is it comfortable with? And and they they have a new, what they call their neutral rate. And they, so they, you know, that's between two and 3%. So say the bank of Canada really wants its overnight rate to be two and a half. From there, if you just build up like what's a, what's a fundamental five-year fixed rate, it probably gets you to about six and a half once you add like spreads for bond yields and whatever else, uh, mortgage, mortgage spread. So like six and a half seems like the top of where a five-year fixed rate could Although, and we're certainly almost got there anyway, or for a stress test rate anyway. So I think like a four (laughs) and a half percent five year fixed rate is probably kind of neutral, which would be a six and a half percent stress test, which is is tough, but doable.
1: And the impacts of this 4% increase, or I guess four and a quarter percent now, I mean, when are we going to... Feel those it's impossible that we've seen those impacts already right like it's
3: yeah so uh if if uh depending on on the flavor of of uh macroeconomist you are and what kind of models you like generally a, a a 100 basis point shock to the overnight rate starts to really has its peak impact on the economy after four to six quarters so we should see the peak of the impacts of all that work the bank of canada was doing like midway through 2023, which is why when you you know forecasts are all saying oh the economy is going to really slow down for a second third quarter of 2023 because that's when those rates are really supposed to bite. the The resale housing market leads the rest of the economy, so the resale market falls right away, but it takes a lot longer for the for the rest of the economy to really feel the impact of those those rate hikes.
0: So I think we've got a, a really good sense of these three programs. We've kind of gone through how you feel like they're going to affect people, and it sounds like. Overall, there's not going to be too much of an impact from any one of these programs uh, in terms of people being able to afford anything, aside from the the stress test, which we've kind of built up over time.
3: Yeah, exactly. I think everything is about interest rates, and unfortunately, I think we're seeing we've probably seen five-year fixed rates peak. Uh, they were five and a half percent at their peak, on average. They've come down uh, average rates 5.19 and, you know, good rates I've seen as low as like four and a half. So they've, they've come down basically any type of rate you're looking at on a fixed rate has come down from December to January. It really depends then what happens with inflation. That's what the economy, if, if we're in a situation where the economy is really slowing down and crucially inflation is also coming back down to its target 2%, then, you know, the bond yield will, you know, bond yields will keep falling. Uh, In anticipation of the Bank of Canada cutting, we'll be into a situation where, like we were in 2019, where five-year fixed rates are falling, uh, and then eventually you'll get variable rates coming down. variable rates should come down 200 basis points because we're 200 basis points higher than than the Bank of Canada wants to be, right? The bank's really slamming on the brakes right now according to their own models. And so we should be at the peak on those rates uh, I, I think so. And and by 2024, we should be in a lower, at least fixed rate situation. We'll see when the bank actually cuts. So so that should help. Our, our kind of baseline case is that we have a pretty slow 2023, but we start to see a pretty strong recovery kind of the end of this year and then a very strong recovery in 2024.
0: Sue had her fingers crossed when we were talking about rates that they have peaked. And I, and I think that's a a really good point in that most people do think that we've kind of hit that peak and we're, we're, you know, hopeful that things moving forward will be better for borrowers.
3: I've said this before, and I I check bond yields every day. And even in December, there was a really weird time where five-year bond yield had come down below three. And then for whatever reason, like in the second half of December, like kicked up above like three and a quarter again. And then fell back down in early January to like 285, and now is back to like 305. So, we've had more volatility in bond yields than maybe at any time since like the mid 90s. Uh, we had like I remember looking at it two, two or three of the largest daily moves in bond yields in just like a six week period that you know, you know, we had in the previous 30 years or something. So, the bond market's grasping at the direction of the economy the same way everyone else is, and that ends up being you know translate to a lot of volatility and bond yields and i think that's why five-year fixed rates have kind of stuck because even banks are like we're not going to be on like a rate roller coaster we want like a sustained decline in yield before we really make make a large kind of downward move in in rates
2: i like the word that you used um in there and i think it's a great place to finish up the episode is on recovery and i hope that we are on a path to recovery regardless of some any government regulations or whatever, whatever it is the government decides to do. um, Let's hope our economy can effectively recover
3: over the next year. So.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a fun time to be an economist.
3: It's always, it's always a fun <laughs> time to be an economist. Never, haven't had a boring year uh, yet in my, in my career. So one of these, one of these days we'll have a really boring time and no one will want to talk to me and I can read a book or something. it will be really nice. <laughs> You've got a few behind <laughs> you. <laughs> I've read, I've read some
0: of them. <laughs> awesome. Hey, thanks so much, Brendan, for joining us today. This has been awesome. And thank you so much for all the insights. Pleasure. Thank you.
3: Thanks,
1: Brendan. Thanks, Brendan. This is The Mortgage Life.
0: We look forward to continuing the conversation.
2: So come back and listen.